would you? Hypothetically. I'm, I'm glad to see you here after the Cardinals lost. I love you. Yeah, I know. Okay. So, um, I just, you know, yeah, I had, I had to pick on somebody else whose team lost because my, my Trojans did not fare very well against Notre Dame last night, and I'm a little bit disappointed. <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, so we, we, are, we have finished the book of Romans, and we are going to begin a, a study on Psalm 23. But before I get there, I, you ever have one of those, like, I, I wonder what the answer to this question biblically is. And so, like, I, I was asking myself this week, how many verses are in the Bible? You know, have, have you guys, does anybody actually have a, a general guess how many verses are in the Bible? How many, how many? 7,000. Higher or lower? Higher, okay. 45,000. Higher or lower? Lower. 25, okay, 31,000. What, what, what is my problem here? Come and fix me, Clint. I don't know. In the Bible. In every single one. So 31,102 verses in the Bible. Now, here's why I mentioned that. I, I was actually going to count them all, and then I realized, no, I've got Google. I can do what, what it would have taken me like a day and a half to do in about 10 seconds. There's 31,102 verses in the entire Bible, and yet, I don't know if any of you guys noticed, but over the last two weeks, God uh, placed the same exact verse on both my heart and on Egypt's heart last week. Psalm 46:10. Be still. Hi. Here I am. He wanted you to hear this part. Be still and know that I am God. Out of 31,102 verses, the same one, and by the way, I want to mention to you that I never talked to Egypt. He never listened to the message from the week before. We just said, speak on whatever God places on your heart. That's what God placed on his heart. And the week prior, I had been planning on speaking on Philemon, and God knows, no, I've got a different plan for you, and totally took me on a detour into Psalm 46.10. Now you might go, oh, that's totally an interesting coincidence. However, as a pastor, I have learned that when I begin to see the same thing, the same message popping up, maybe it's, you know, I go to church and I hear a message, and then I'm in the car and I'm listening to the radio, and somebody else says something about that, and then I go online and maybe there's a, an online devotional I get, you know, I'm, I'm reading through My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers, and boom, he hits the same point again. When I start seeing those things again and again, I start taking notice, because this is one of the ways that God speaks to us. In fact, if you look through Scripture, any time that a point is repeated or a word is repeated, that is their way of highlighting it, saying, like, don't miss this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Jesus, whenever he would speak and he really wanted to accentuate a point, amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you. And then he would say whatever he was going to say. That was his way of highlighting it. Moses, going to Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. No, that's not going to work for you. Okay, here's a plague or two. Now, let my people go. You want a couple more? Okay, 
Let my people go. So this repetition is one of the ways that God gets our attention. And over the last couple of weeks, he's obviously been trying to get at least my attention. But I've talked to a lot of you guys who have been going, man, that is something I've been struggling with as well. It's just this sense of I feel like I'm constantly running. And God's just telling me to stop striving, stop running, to be still. And then on the heels of that, for the last couple of months, we've been planning. And, and can, you, can you change the slide? I don't. That's just distracting. First off, I know that Jesus was not a white dude. So that's just. Anyway. Be still. I know my mind is like, ah, ADD. It's the candy I was trying this morning. Be still and know I am God. And on the heels of that, we come to Psalm 23, which is the most, one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture. And it is a passage that declares God's trustworthiness and His faithfulness so that we can slow down and rest in Him. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. This is a psalm written by... King David. And it's one that you guys are all very familiar with. And it's interesting. I know that we've all probably, if you know it, you know it in a certain translation. Some of you King James, you know, the these, the thous, and the shalls are just paramount. And then some of the other translations as they're, you know, just trying to really get at the heart of it will change up the wording. And it's so hard for me to read it in my NIV because I have it memorized with the shalls and the vows and I, and I miss it. So as I read this, I'm going to kind of fill in some of the, just remind us of some of the different translations here. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or as they have it here, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet or still waters. He restores or refreshes my soul. He guides me along paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley or through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That passage is more well known than just about any other verse, barring perhaps John 3.16, you know, and, and maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love chapter that you hear at every wedding that you go to. Psalm 23 is one of the most quoted passages in secular writing. It is really well known. But here's the problem. If you start hearing something over and again, and it becomes something you become familiar with, familiarity can breed almost a sense of you just stop listening to it. You really stop grasping the heart of it. It it almost loses its punch. Kind of like one of those songs that you've memorized and you know it so well, you've sung it so many times, that you can sing the words to it without even listening to what you're saying. You ever catch yourself doing that? All the time. And so what we wanted to do over the course of this next six weeks or so is we are going to take a slow journey through Psalm 23. Although it's only six verses long, we're going to take six weeks to go through it. We're going to take a verse a week. and We're just going to sit on this. We're going to ruminate in it. We're going to allow 
it to just percolate at a verse at a time so that we can begin to strip away the familiar veneer and really get to the heart of what was David saying and why was he saying it and what does it tell us about the God that we serve, that we follow. And so this morning I'm going to look at Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, or I lack nothing. I should mention that this was written by a real person, even though it's something that, you know, I often, when I was younger, looked at the Bible as something that just kind of fell out of heaven, complete and bound in this, like, faux leather, um, red underlines and and all that kind of stuff when Jesus spoke. But the reality is, the Bible is a, a, a document that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but ultimately penned by human beings who were within real circumstances. And Psalm 23 was written by a real person, a guy named David. And we know more about David than just about anybody else in Scripture barring Jesus. Because he's got a couple of books, First and Second Samuel, that follow the course of his life from his early years as the youngest of eight sons tending sheep, to this moment when he stood before a giant and basically took him down and then ultimately became the king of Israel. We, we know the highs and the lows of his life, but not only that, we have the Psalms, which are poems or songs just penned, many of them by David. And so we, we not only know what he did, his biography, but we also know what he was thinking, what he was feeling when he was caught in adultery and God kind of called him to the carpet on it. Psalm 51 is his declaration of repentance. So we we know a lot about David, and it's a wonderful thing. But it was David who wrote these words, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And David was a shepherd himself. He had spent a good portion of his younger years tending sheep, so he understood what it meant to be a shepherd. He understood that a shepherd's job was to care for the sheep, to lead them, to guide them, to protect them, to provide for them. Why? Because sheep are not the smartest animals. Sheep are not the most independent of animals. In fact, by nature, sheep are dependent. They don't have claws or sharp teeth that they can use to defend themselves from predators. They're not all that quick. They can't really run away when the predator is coming around. Nor are they all that smart about where to find water. If there's a muddy pit right there, they will drink out of that rather than going and actually looking for clean water. They will, they will kind of peruse the same fields even if the grass is dead. They are desperately dependent upon their shepherd to lead them, to guide them, to protect them, and to provide for them. And the well-being of the sheep is directly dependent upon the capability of their shepherd. The capability of the shepherd is directly involved in how well the sheep do. If the shepherd is capable and cares for them and knows what they need and when they need it, then the sheep are going to flourish. But if the shepherd is either apathetic about the sheep's needs or is more focused on his own needs, so he's more interested in how are these sheep taking care of me rather than how am I taking care of the sheep, then they're going to suffer. And if we look at Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, because David was a man who was right in the midst of all of these things happening, for the the nation of Israel, God was always intended to be Israel's shepherd king. From the very beginning, 
It was God who called Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You are going to be my representatives, a kingdom of priests. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will give you offspring that are, new, are more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. When there was a famine in the land, it was God who led the nation of Israel, who at that time was just a small family, a guy with 12 sons. But he led them into Egypt to protect them from this famine. In fact, he used a kid named Joseph who bugged his brothers enough to the point where they sold him into slavery, but he used that to get him into a position where he could actually open the doors for his family, the nation of Israel in its infancy, to survive. And generations passed, and they were in Egypt, protected from that famine. But then as the generations passed, then all of a sudden, they went from being guests to being slaves in Egypt. And then God called another guy, a guy named Moses, and said, Okay, I want you to go and represent me, and I want you to bring my people out of slavery in Egypt. I want you to lead them to the land that I promised to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey meaning a really rich, wonderful place. I want you to lead them out of slavery. And he brought them using these plagues to kind of break Pharaoh's grip on his people, on those slaves. And he brought the nation of Israel out. And then God, their shepherd king, led them through the wilderness up to the Red Sea. And then he separated the water supernaturally so that the people could walk through on dry ground. He decimated the Egyptian army that was pursuing him right behind him. He protected them from them. And he began to lead them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, guiding them step by step. He provided for their needs manna in the morning, quail at night, water from the rock. Their clothes didn't even wear out during that time. And he led them into the promised land after a a period of time. But once they got there, once they got situated and, and settled down into these houses that they hadn't built, and tending these fields that they had not planted. They started to look around them and they started to realize, well, wait a minute. All these other nations, they have kings that, that they can point to and say, this is our leader, this is our ruler, this is our shepherd. Who do we have? We have God and then we have maybe his representative prophets that kind of crop up from time to time. But we want to be like all the other nations. God's holding out on us. God, give us a king, so we can be like these other nations. And in a way, they they rejected their shepherd king, the original intention that God had for his people. And so God gave them what they asked for. Oftentimes when we ask for something, if it's not, you know, we, we think that if God doesn't give it to us, that's not very kind, that his grace is him giving us what we want. But the reality is, when we ask for something that God does not want for us, To give it to us is actually his judgment. To hold it back and say, no, you can't have it, that's his grace. And in this instance, he gave them what they asked for. You want a king? Fine. Here's your king. In fact, he's going to be a king just like what you think you want. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Physically imposing. Here's a man's man, right? But in reality... On the outside, Saul, the first king of Israel, may have looked strong and capable, but inside he was insecure, terribly insecure. So much so that he he feared the people's opinion of him more than he feared God's opinion of him. And so he would listen to the people's grumblings and try to, to state their desires 
as opposed to trusting God to guide him in his leadership. And so because of that, because he was an insecure, incapable shepherd, the flock suffered. The people of Israel suffered tremendously under him. And finally, God stepped in and said, enough of this. I've given you what you think you need. Now it's my time to care for you because at the end of the day, I truly am the good shepherd. And I still care about you regardless of the fact that you've rejected me as your king. And so he chose another kid, a guy named David. The youngest of eight sons. And by the way, in that day and age, the oldest son was the most important son. And your importance and your value to the family dwindled with each kid that was born before you. David was the eighth son. And so he was relegated with the least important task, that of tending the sheep. If you were the youngest kid and then your parents had another son and he came of age, you're like, here, you get that chore. Now I get to go do something else. And it had fallen to David. And when Samuel, the prophet, came to anoint the next king, Jesse, David's father, starts parading all of his sons in front of him. And, Jesse's, and Samuel's like, no, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse, David's father, almost forgot about David. Oh, yeah, there's that kid out in the field. Let me go bring him in. But here's the thing. Even though on the outside he wasn't what somebody would have looked at and said, this is our man, God was looking at his heart and God said, this is a man after my own heart. I can lead him. I can be his shepherd king, so I will entrust the shepherding of others to his care. So God called David to be the king of Israel. Now here's the thing, though. Come on, train of thought. Um... The thing is, I brought my notes up here for this very reason. Psalm 23 was written by that kid, by that shepherd, by a a boy that became a man. And he could have pointed to it and he could have written, the Lord is our shepherd, right? Right? could have very, very easily said, the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not be in want. But he didn't say that. He could have pointed to all the ways that God had been the shepherd king of his people, but instead he pointed to himself and said, the Lord is my shepherd. Because for him it was far more personal than just God has taken care of all of us. He could recognize the ways that in his own life God had taken care of him had guided his steps, had provided for his needs, had protected him from his enemies. He saw the way that God had anointed and pulled him out of the field and basically said, you are going to be my representative, caring for my people. And his trust in his God and his shepherd was so great that when he went to go check on his brothers during a war, And he walked onto the battlefield and there was his brothers lined up for battle and there was the Philistine army lined up for battle and this giant of a man, nine and a half feet tall, comes walking out from the Philistine lines and said, where is your God? Where is a man in all of Israel that will stand up and fight me? I defy you. David was the only one who went, this isn't okay. What's going on here? And everybody, including King Saul, was trembling. And David was the only one, even though he was just a boy, he was the only one to say, this is not right. And so he stood up, and I love what David said, because this just gives it a picture of who he was and the trust he had in his shepherd. 
You don't need to turn here, but in 1 Samuel chapter 17, this was what David said when he stood before Goliath. Goliath in all of his armor with his huge spear and his huge sword, and David just wearing his clothes with a little sling and a stone, he says to, to the Philistine, to Goliath, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. David trusted God more than he feared that giant of a man standing in front of him. And so while the king on down quaked in fear, David ran to the battle line and took the fight to Goliath. And God glorified himself and used David on that day. And that was one example He saw the way that God had protected him from Saul's jealousy because as Saul saw David's stock rising with the people, Saul began to realize, this guy is a threat to my positional authority. I'm the king, but but the people like him more than me. And so although David had never done a single thing to indicate that he was not trustworthy, Saul sought to kill him. And for a couple of decades, he actually hid, had to run from Saul. David didn't have an easy life in any way, shape, or form. And yet God protected him and ultimately brought him to the throne and made him the king of Israel after Saul was killed. David could say with absolute certainty, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And I want to I just stop there for that second part because we might read that in our English translations to indicate God had taken care of everything David could have possibly wanted. I mean, after all, he made this shepherd boy into a king. He blessed him financially and, and with success and everything he put his hand to. He was a great general and he, he just, he blessed him so much to so the Lord. Of course he would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I won't want for anything, that everything I want will be given to me. Instead, he was saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need because there's a very big difference between wanting something and being in want. And a good shepherd recognizes what his sheep needs and he takes care of those needs so that they're not in want, so they're not starving, so uh, their wool is not so heavy that when they lay down, they can't get back up. He protects them from wild animals and all that kind of stuff. And when the grass gets trampled, he leads them to another pasture. The shepherd recognizes what his sheep needs and provides for their needs, but a good shepherd does not always give his sheep what they think they want, any more than I give my kids every single thing that they want. Otherwise, we'd be having ice cream at every meal of the day. In fact, I don't even give myself what I want because otherwise we'd be having ice cream at every meal of the day. So there's a difference, a distinction between wanting something and being in want. And a good shepherd recognizes what his sheep needs. But will oftentimes say no. A good shepherd knows how to say no when what they're wanting is not necessarily what they're needing. 
with my kids, that is a tough battle because obviously they want a lot of things that at the end of the day would be harmful to them, would be a distraction, that would be unhealthy. And if I gave them everything they wanted, then they're going to be fat, unhealthy, and spoiled. And as a loving parent, that's the last thing I want for my boys. Sometimes the most loving thing we can say is no. And our shepherd, our shepherd king understands what we need and sometimes what we desperately need is for him to say, I know you think you want that, but just be patient. Just wait. I know what you need better than you know what you need. So wait on me and trust in me. Find your rest in me. And in my timing, I will give you what you need. In fact, sometimes what we need is discipline. David, didn't, David may have been a man after God's own heart, but he was in no way a perfect man. He made plenty of mistakes. He wasn't the best of fathers. His son Absalom tried to depose him because he was so upset at his dad. David was an adulterer. He impregnated the wife of one of his closest friends. And yet, even in the midst of that, his shepherd king never turned his back on David, never gave up on him. Instead, he, he moved towards him and restored him and drew him, walked him out of that sin, got him back up on his feet. And sometimes that's what we need desperately, is a shepherd who will not give up on us even when we want to give up on us, even when the people around us want to give up on us. So David could say with absolute certainty, the Lord is my shepherd. He's not just our shepherd, he is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Can you say that? Do you recognize as you survey the winding pathway of your life, the ways that God has provided, protected, and guided your steps? For the ways that he has protected you from things you thought you wanted but would have ultimately been destructive or, or detours? Have you seen the ways that he is supernaturally taking care of your needs in just the right time? Not always when you want them, not only in the way that you expect, but he has answered your prayers in ways that you could not have fathomed and has ultimately glorified himself in that. As I was preparing for this week, I, I started kind of looking back over my life, and honestly, there are dozens and dozens of examples I could give you of ways that I've seen God to be faithful, not just in other people's lives, but in my life. The ways that this has been true for me. And there's one in particular. I was actually, I went body surfing with, with Dee on Monday morning, and as we're coming out of, you know, getting back in the car and driving, I, just, I shared with him a story that I thought I'd shared with him before. He goes, I'd never heard this story at all. This is ridiculous. And I go, you know what? You're right. I, I may not have ever shared it here on a Sunday, and I just want to share this with you. And I share it with you not because I think it is the norm, but because it's one of those moments in my life where my shepherd was showing off. And I just want to give him the glory in this because I love the ways that my God has provided, not just for myself, but for other people. And so this, this story started about eight years ago. My wife and I were at another church down the street, and we were doing this thing called the Go Campaign, which was this massive push to try to get everybody in the church to do at least one overnight missions trip over the course of the summer, which meant we had to come up with something like 5,000 trips for people or, you know, opportunities, slots for people to go. And I was in charge of a thousand of those slots. 
Over the course of one summer, I was in charge of getting about 200 people to go spend a weekend at the the, um, Long Beach Rescue Mission. I spent several weekends up there. We sent a whole group of people over to Catalina to take care of the um, youth camp that many of our youth have been to. We went over there and kind of fixed some stuff up, cut back brush, things like that. And we built 16 homes in Mexico, just like the the four that we've built over the course of the years here. 16. To this day, Hands of Mercy is like, we use you, Eric, as the example of what not to do on your first try of this. And I understand why, because there were a couple of moments where I literally was like, if I put in my two-week notice now, all of this will be done already, and it will be, I, I won't be able to get out of doing this. All right. It was an exhausting summer. Absolutely exhausting. And on top of that, Kathy was working. We didn't have kids yet, but we were running a million miles a minute. And I'd had to go get my car smogged, and it cost me like $800 to fix up some things in the car to get it to pass smog. The day I drove it out of the, the mechanics... I headed up to the Long Beach Rescue Mission for another weekend up there, and the transmission light comes on. Seriously? So here's another $1,000 I'm going to need to spend. And and when I got home and talked to Kathy, we just went, forget it. Let's park the car, and let's just make do with one vehicle. And I recognize for some of you, you're like, we make do with one vehicle all the time, so what's the problem? For us, we are always stretched in different ways, and we are used to having two cars. But we said, this summer, let's do one car. And I'll tell you, it was a blessing in disguise because over the course of that summer, it forced Kathy and I, who would have otherwise been like two ships passing in the night, to communicate about our schedules. She would be dropping me off. I'd be dropping her off. We would talk. We would pray in the car. It was a really sweet time when it otherwise would have been somewhere where we were just not seeing one another at all. But the summer ended. That huge push called the Go campaign ended she got a second job so that we could try to make ends meet, and we just went, okay, we, we need that second vehicle because we're going in too many different directions. And so on a Friday, she and I went out looking at cars that we saw on Craigslist, just trying to figure something out. But here's the problem. She, neither she nor I had ever been to Dave Ramsey at that point. We had absolutely no idea that you're supposed to actually be saving to buy something. We just figured the money would be there, and it wasn't there. So everything we're looking at, even if it was $100, we didn't have that. We couldn't buy that. And so we came home dejected and disappointed. And I remember we're sitting at home. She's, her stomach's swelling because we got the baby coming. And I get a call from one of my friends who's a financial planner. And, and I use the term financial planner loosely because he actually prayed with his clients way more than he actually helped them with their finances. He, he used his business as a ministry. But in the process of that, he wasn't making a whole lot of income to support his family. And so I would often go over to his workplace and I would pray with him and, and his partner. And he called me up and asked me if I could come over to his office. So I figured he was just asking me to come pray and I went over to his office. And he sat down and he said, Eric, I need to tell you a story. A couple months back, one of my clients, now this is my friend speaking, goes, a couple months back, one of my clients who is really wealthy, in fact, about a half of my income comes simply through this guy and his investments. And two months ago, I'm working with this guy, and he's talking about the new car he's buying his wife and this and that, and I felt God very strongly impressed on my heart to tell this guy to give his extra car away. Because this guy is like the rich young ruler. He's got all this money, and he's not willing to give his heart fully to God because he's afraid that God is going to ask him for his stuff. And I recognize this about this guy, and then God tells me to tell him to give his extra car away. And his first impulse was, I'm not going to tell my client that. I'll lose my client and then my family will really be in trouble. But God, who is often persistent, impressed that again. He goes, tell him to give his extra car away. 
So my buddy Josh looks at his client and goes, listen, <laughs> you're going to think I'm crazy, but God is telling me to suggest to you that you give your extra car away. Now, I'm never going to mention it again, but if you feel like that is what God is telling you, then awesome. Guy goes, okay. Conversation goes on. They finish. Two months go by. He never hears a peep about this. And then the guy calls him up that Friday, the same day that Kathy and I had gone out looking at cars for the first time. He calls him up and says, you know, Josh, um, two months ago you brought this up, and I want you to know we didn't own that car that you were suggesting we give away. It was a lease, but my wife and I have been praying about it, and we have decided to buy it out of its lease, so I'm going to come and drop off the key and the pink slip to this car. And at this time, the whole time that Josh had mentioned this, he had started to pray about, well, God, who should this car go to? Do we get to keep it? And God's like, nope. Does it go to my brother? Nope. They started going through the list of people he knew, and for whatever reason, he landed on Kathy and I. Josh had no idea what was going on in our life, didn't realize that we were doing with one vehicle, didn't know we needed anything. Simply, that was whose name came up as he was praying about this. And so he says, Eric, God loves you. And he hands me the pink slip and the keys to a 2002 Lexus LS430, which at the time is worth more than I made in an entire year. And that's used. And I'm just kind of astounded. And then we go home and we tell Kathy this story. And then we show her the car and she starts weeping. Because if she had been able to walk onto any lot and choose any make of car and any color of car, that's the car she would have chosen. And it's not just about a car, by the way. Although I do want you to know the reason that we drive a Lexus is not because we can afford it, because we're making a ton of money. It cost me $15 to transfer that title, thank you very much. <laughs> the reason I shared that with you is it's not simply about the car, but it was about God's timing. Because had that man given us the car two months prior, when he was first suggested that he give the car away, it would have robbed from Kathy and I that entire summer of having to communicate, of having to figure out one vehicle to drive around. That... Time was a gift from God and his timing of when to give it to us was at exactly the right time so that he got all the glory. Not just enough glory of, hey, I'm giving you a Lexus, but I'm giving it to you at just the right moment. So that you know that I am God. So be still and trust in me. I've got you. It not only blessed us, but it blessed a man that I have never to this day met. Didn't go to our church. A man who had such a tight grip on his possessions that it was difficult for him to release them and to hold on to his God. And for him, it was a giant blessing to be able to say, I trust you, God, more than I trust my bank account and my stuff, so I'm going to release it. And a rich young ruler gave something away. But it didn't stop there. So I'm, I'm sharing, I began to share this story with people. And I was, I was sitting down with a couple of the small group leaders that I was mentoring at the time. And I'm telling them the story of how God had literally given us a car. And these, this is a young couple just gotten married. And they're just shaking their heads going, oh my goodness, that's amazing. I wish God would do that for us. You see, we're, we're a couple of mechanics. We just got married. We have no money. He works in Long Beach. And I work in a mechanic shop over here in Costa Mesa. And I'm like dropping him off and driving back and then picking him up. And it's just crazy. And then the Holy Spirit goes, what about your other car? You know, the one that you parked 
that the transmission... I go, well, you know, it's interesting. I actually have this car. The transmission's going on it, but you guys are mechanics. You can fix it. And if you want it, it's yours. And they go, really? And so I gave them the pink slip and the keys to our old car. A couple months later, I see him at church. She's getting out of the car, and I go, hey, how's the car doing? She's like, it's great. I don't know what you're talking about, a transmission issue. It's never been an issue at all. We haven't had to do a thing to it. Apparently, the Lord is their shepherd. They shall not want either. Again, I don't share that with you because I think that God just is going to give us stuff and that it's a name it or claim it kind of thing. The reason I share that with you is because we have a God who is bigger than our problems. And we may feel overwhelmed in the moment. We may be maybe looking at something going, I don't know what the answer is. In fact, I've got lots of things in this moment that I'm looking at and going, I don't know what the answer is. And then I look at moments like that, and that is one of dozens I could share with you. I look at moments like that, and I go, the Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I have everything I need. He may not necessarily ever give me everything I want, but he will certainly provide my needs. And so again, I ask you, is the Lord your shepherd? Can you say with the same confidence that David did, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Are you able to rest in him, trust his leadership, his guidance, his protection, his provision? Because I'll tell you that there are a lot of competing shepherds out there. He is one of many shepherds that we could put our trust in. For some, we put our trust in our bank accounts. That's somebody that, or something that we can trust that is another potential shepherd. We might put our trust in our own abilities and our skills. We ultimately become the shepherds of our own life, the captains of our own ship. And that we, we do that until we kind of hit that iceberg and realize that we are desperately in need of someone who's greater even than us. Some of us put our our trust in other people above us. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a pastor. May I tell you right now that Lee and I are not trustworthy shepherds to place all of your trust in. We are hired hands. Okay, I will speak for myself. I am a hired hand. I love you and I am doing my best to shepherd you, but I will make mistakes. I will fall short. I will let you down. And if your faith is dependent upon me or Lee or any other pastor or any other leader, you will be disappointed and your faith will be shaken. But the Lord is the leader and shepherd of this church. The Lord is the only trustworthy, capable, worthy shepherd, worthy of your faith. So please don't look to Lee or I and say they are the foundation. They are the ones that I'm following. I hope you don't follow us. If anything, follow us to our knees than saying, God, you need to be in control because we feel out of control. Sorry, I'm just saying. But it's not only that he is a capable shepherd, a worthy shepherd. He is also our rightful owner. Because let's not forget, he made us, created us in his image, kind of knows what to do with us. And he bought and paid for us, buying us out of our slavery to sin through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. He is our rightful owner, and yet he does not force himself upon us. 
He does not demand that we submit to him and trust him. Instead, he invites us to do it because he desires relationship, not just people who have been forced to do something. And trusting our shepherd, submitting to his leadership, giving our lives to him is not a momentary one-time decision. Although oftentimes we make it about praying a prayer. Following our shepherd and placing our trust in him is a daily decision. A momentary decision. When, that, when, when we hit that snag at work and we don't know what to do, in that moment we must choose who we will serve. We must choose who we will trust and follow. God, our bank account, our own abilities, somebody else. When our marriage is shaken, when our confidence is shaken, when our children are rebelling, when our bodies are breaking down, we must choose in those moments who we will serve. When we are succeeding, when our lives are being blessed, when we have all the things that we could ask for and more, we must choose in that moment whom we will serve and in whom we will place our trust. It's not a momentary decision. It is a daily... I'm sorry. No, that's not true. It is a a, a moment-by-moment decision. In every moment, we must choose. And so, to, to quote Joshua, as they stood on the cusp of the promised land, we each need to choose this day who we'll serve, who we will follow, who we will place our trust in. Ourselves? Our, our stuff? Or the Lord God? I'll tell you this. Right now, I can say with confidence, although I will stumble, although it will not necessarily be true of every single moment of every single day, as for me and my family, we will choose to serve the Lord. We will choose to follow Him and to place our trust in Him. Because I have seen His faithfulness. He has been good to us. And even in the midst, I know there are more struggles coming. We're not promised easy, carefree lives. We're not promised cars that just show up on our parking lot. We're not promised houses, even though that's the American dream. We're not promised comfortable, carefree life. We're not promised that we will be monetarily blessed. But we are promised this. Our shepherd will never leave us or forsake us. He has already done everything that needs to be done to make sure that the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. So whether we are persecuted for our faith, whether we have much or have little, whether we are healthy or we are sick, He is the only one who is worthy of our trust and our obedience. So I just encourage you to be still. Know that He is God. And to rest in your shepherd's capable hands. In this world we'll have trouble, but we can take heart in the fact that he has overcome the world through the cross. He has already conquered sin and death. And we have eternity to look forward to. But that eternity doesn't start when we die. That eternity begins the moment we submit our lives to him and say, I want intimate relationship with you. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's go ahead and pray. I'm going to invite the the worship team to come forward. Father God, I thank you that you are not only our rightful owner, our rightful shepherd, but you are a capable, trustworthy shepherd. And we are easily frightened sheep that oftentimes think we know what's best and we run off and get ourselves in trouble. And I thank you that even then you don't give up on us. You pursue us. 
you bring us back, you restore us. And so, God, we just submit our lives to you. And in this moment, right now, we say, God, here I am. Help yourself to my life. Your will be done. You know the stuff that's getting in the way. You know the things that we fear, the things that we are running to, to try to self-medicate, the things that we think we need that at the end of the day would destroy us. And we pray that you would guide our steps, that you would glorify yourself in and through us. Help us to rest in you, our ever-faithful shepherd and Lord. Jesus, in your name. Amen.